not sure how we can check because it's still blinking. Let me go check oh. again. Oh, okay. I didn't even see it. I'm gonna... Yeah, it's live. All right, we're good to go. Go ahead. Okay. Heth. Tent wall. Outside. Divide. Divide. Excuse me. Divide half. You are my portion, O Lord. You have, I have promised to obey your word. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your command. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous law. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love. O Lord, teach me your decrees. Hot dog. Good stuff. Let's see, today is October 10th, I believe. We'll read this before we pray. 1010, oh, see? Uh, let's see, he switched from the practice of law to the pleading of the cause of Christ. Let me put that in there. In 1818, a 26-year-old man named Charles Finney, oh yes, wow. Charles uh -huh. Finney began a law apprenticeship in attorney's office in Adams, New York. Although he had a limited formal education, within just three years, he became a junior partner in the law firm. As Finney studied law, the authors he read quite often quoted the Bible. Realizing his own ignorance of the scriptures, he began to study them for himself. When a new minister came to the local Presbyterian church, Finney began to attend. He got very little from the sermons and was rather skeptical of the whole concept of God answering prayer. But he loved music and volunteered to be the chief, the choir director. Then in the summer of 1821, the pastor took a trip to visit his sick sister and told his replacement just to read sermons from a book. Surprisingly, the Holy Spirit began to move among the church members and Finney sensed that <laughs> something was about to happen. One day as Finney was returning from a legal appointment, he walked by a schoolhouse and heard a man playing inside. The words of that prayer stuck in his mind and affected him more than all the sermons he had heard previously. He started to spend a lot of time wondering about his own salvation. Finney later recounted what happened on a especially significant day, October 10th, 1821. At an early hour, I started for the office, but just before I arrived at the office, someone seemed to confront me with questions like these. Do you not promise to give your heart to God? And what are you trying to do? Are you endeavoring to work out a righteousness of your own? Just at that point, the whole question of God's salvation opened to my mind in a manner most marvelous to me. I saw then, as clearly as I ever had in my life, the reality and the fullness of the atonement of Christ. I saw that his work was a finished work, that instead of having or needing any righteousness of my own to recommend me to God, I had to submit myself to the righteousness of God in Christ. It was full and complete, and that all was necessary on my part was to give up my sins and accept Christ. I kind of got that out of order, but that's okay. Salvation, it seemed to me, instead of being a thing to be wrought out by one's own works, was a thing to be found entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ who presented himself before me as God my Savior. Well, if he says I have to give up my sins and accept Christ, then it's obviously of his own doing. So like I said, he got that out of order there. Instead of going to his office, Finney went into a nearby woods and spent the morning wrestling with God in prayer until he reported, I found that my mind had become most wonderfully quiet and peaceful. The next day, a client who was a deacon from his church came to his office and reminded him, Mr. Finney, do you recollect that my case is to be tried at 10 this morning? 
Finney replied, Deacon, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ to plead his cause, and I cannot plead yours. Stunned by his answer, the deacon only later came to understand what Finney meant when he himself shortly thereafter experienced the same changed life that Finney had. Charles Finney went on to become the leading revivalist of the 19th century with approximately a half a million people coming to Christ through the influence of his ministry. Beginning in upstate New York, his revival swept through New York City, Philadelphia, Boston, and Rochester. In 1835, he became professor of theology at the newly formed Oberlin College Institute, now Oberlin College. He served as the college's president from 1851 to 1866, and it all started on that fateful day in 1821 when Charles Finney switched from the practice of law to pleading the cause of Christ. They asked, uh, like Charles Finney, or they say, like Charles Finney, we all face the choice of whether to trust our own righteousness to make us acceptable to God or to accept the forgiveness and righteousness offered by Jesus Christ. In which righteousness are you trusting? I got several emails today from people trusting in their own. It's hard to correct them, but you keep trying. Now I will expose you, your, now I will expose your so-called good deeds that you consider so righteous. None of them will benefit or save you. Isaiah 57 verse 12. So Charles Finney is one of those guys that people either love or they don't love. I, you know, um, I'm kind of moot on the subject. He was a Christian. He was saved, and he had some funny ideas about some things, but he uh, he brought a lot of people to Christ, too. Probably not. I was thinking that while I was reading it. Anytime you have, like, a theological seminary that was started in the 17 or 18 or 1900s, I got to tell you, they've gone the way of the dodo for the most part of them. But there, you know, there are some good colleges out there. People will email me and ask what I recommend, and I... I got a very short list, a very short list of colleges I'd recommend to people. Does your um, Bible have a note there of when this uh, Psalm 119 was written? Psalm 119 was yeah. written? How, how old was David? David it, it doesn't, it doesn't say that David wrote it, David? no. Okay. There's no, no author ascribed well, to it. Well, the writer had to be in his 60s. Okay. Well, she said at midnight I got up. And yeah, and say it, praise to you. He didn't, didn't tell what else he did. No, that's right. At midnight I... <laughs> That's she went it. to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, we got a couple prayer requests here. Lisa, stepdad. Um, her stepdad, uh, personal physical problems. And uh, uh, I can't read my own handwriting, so I'm sorry. Lisa, her stepdad, and personal physical problems, too. Yes. Um, Becky, who we've prayed for a few weeks in a row, is... Uh, still struggling with a couple of things in her life, and so we want to keep her in prayer. And then Sue Comas is having some internal problems and maybe coming down with a cold to add to her trials. So we want to keep them in prayer. Charlie, yes. Have, uh, my friend Carrie just had surgery. Carrie just had surgery, so we yeah. want to add her into our prayers as well. So if you colon cancer. Oh, holy mackerel. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to pray for these people and any others that are. Uh, going through their own troubles and trials. Uh, Bruce and Jackie come to mind right now. They're still looking for employment in their new location. And if you can provide something for that, we would certainly be grateful. And I know they would be most appreciative. Uh, so it's been a long, long wait and they're still waiting. So they know that your hand is with them. And so they're not complaining in any way, shape or form. They're leaving it up to you. But we would pray that that would come to an end and that things would uh, be uh, less anxious for them in their own lives. And Lord, we do uh, thank you for the chance to get into your word, and we would pray that it would be handled properly, but I would also pray that people would check 
just to make sure that what is uh, said here is in accord with what you intend. And uh, certainly it would never be our intention to teach wrongly, but Lord, you know all things. And uh, if we are, please direct people to the correct and proper instruction that they need. And Lord, we pray this, that you will be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hello, Miss Garrett. You're just in time. Actually, you're five minutes late, but that's okay. Um, let's see here. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're starting in verse 9 today. But if you want to go back a little bit, yeah, whatever. Three. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. At last, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one of the abnormally born. Nine, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Okay, it would help if I was in the right book of the Bible. I'm in Romans, and I'm thinking, I, I had something I'm trying to find, and I can't find it, but I'm sitting here in Romans and saying, that doesn't look like uh, Romans, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Okay, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Okay, my comments on this. In explanation of his previous verse, where he said he was born out of due time, he now notes that I am the least of the apostles. What else does he call himself somewhere else? I'm the chief, that's right, the chief of sinners. He wasn't claiming this in gifts received, work effort put forth, or rank and status. He was an apostle equal to the others. He notes in 2 Corinthians 11 that he labored more than all the others. And he is noted throughout Acts and the epistles as having an overflowing abundance of the gifts of the Spirit. What he is referring to is his deserving of respect and honor. His calling was out of the order of the other apostles and without prior education by Christ. He felt that because of this, he was not worthy to be called an apostle. Specifically, during that time of spiritual darkness, he not only wasn't neutral to the gospel, but he actually persecuted, as he says, the church of God. His persecution of the church is noted in Acts chapters 8 and 9, but he gives detail of what this constituted in Acts chapter 26. So let me take you there very quickly, and I'll read you what he had to say about that. Acts chapter 26, we'll take you down to, let's see, we'll go to verse 8. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of J Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And he goes on in verse 11, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blasphemy and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So that's Paul's legacy before he became a Christian. He also mentions those areas of his life which he felt disqualified him from any esteem in his epistles. And he never seemed to quite forgive himself, even though the Lord had washed him clean of his transgressions. Or it could be that he simply didn't want to forget his past, lest he exalt himself above, 
above other sinners in need of a savior. It could even be that he reminded himself often of his past so that he would never fall back into his old ways. Whatever his actual thoughts, he carried his past with him and he spoke of it freely. I will often talk to the Lord about my past and I'll mention it to other people and they say, you need to forget that. And I say, I don't want to forget it. I don't want to forget what I have done in the past before I met the Lord because I don't want to go back and be that person. I don't want to be that person in attitude. I don't want to be that person in how I treated people around me. I don't want to be that person in any way. I want, you know, I had no fear of God. I was out doing my thing. I thought that working hard was what a person did. And that was the, the end of all things was hard work. And hard work is a great thing. I still try to work hard every day, but there are other things to put first before that. So anyway, you know, I don't want to forget. I'm sure Paul didn't want to either. Life application here. All in Christ have a past. Some are worse than others, but James note that one infraction of the law breaks the whole law. Therefore, we all stand guilty before God without the shed blood of Christ. Let us cling to this notion, not exalting ourselves over others, and in the hope of never returning to a life of sin. Let us live for Christ, exalting him for his infinite grace and mercy. Sergio was here, and I said to him uh, something. We were having a conversation about something, and he said, I can't put myself up against anybody else, basically, is what he said. He said, I've done things too. And he says, one sin separated me from God. That's all I needed. And so why would I think that I'm better than the worst of sinners? And he's absolutely right. We need to remind each other about that from time to time. I don't remember the conversation, but I remember him saying that and thinking, good job. That's the way it should be. Yes. First Timothy 1.13 says, uh, even though I was a, formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, persecutor. and a violent aggressor, yep. yet I was showing mercy because I... Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Absolutely right. He acted ignorantly in unbelief. And you don't know what you're doing until you come to Christ. You have nothing to compare yourself against except other bad people. And you say, I'm not as bad as him. And so I must be okay. God must be okay with me. Never works that way. There's no bell curve in, in uh, being saved. It's either all Christ or no Christ. There's nothing in between. 1510. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, the grace of God that was with me. There you go. This one says, not, rather than not, no effect, it, it was not in vain. His grace toward me was not in vain. Previously speaking of his state of unworthiness as an apostle, Paul now shows the attention that he committed to the high honor that was bestowed upon him. He went from a persecutor of the church to a staunch defender and supporter of it. The cause of Christ became his sole passion, even his sole passion, S-O-U-L, and desire. And so to show this contrast between his past and who he had become, he begins with the words of this verse with, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's where we are. I mean, whatever station we're in, in Christ, it's by the grace of God alone. If we're still alive today, it's because he didn't take us yesterday. Whatever it is, it's by the grace of God. As long as we can keep thinking that, then we're at least going to be in a, a good spot with the Lord. <laughs> Might not be in a great spot, but at least we can know that everything is by his grace. And we can add to that with all kinds of other thinking about him and praising him and worshiping him. And, but his conversion, speaking of Paul, was solely by the grace of God. He was on his way to Damascus to do what? 
Yeah, to, that's right, to persecute the church, to arrest people. And on the way there, the Lord appeared to him personally. There was nothing that he did to deserve it, nothing. He was looking to destroy the notion of the Lord, but instead the Lord lavished his grace upon him in a personal appearance and calling. He could have been destroyed, but the Lord mercifully spared him. We're going to see that this week in uh, the upcoming sermon. Numbers 31, 12 through 24, the captives, the booty, and the spoil. And not only had the Lord spared him unto the calling of an apostle, but Paul notes that his grace toward me was not in vain. Grace, which is taken for granted, will be displayed in wasted effort. If you give a sluggard $1,000, which is grace, it will be spent by the end of the day on useless things, which will be in the garbage by the weekend. We see this in the projects every single week. Give somebody something that's of value, they have no sense of it, and it ends up out in the garbage. You can take the nicest table to them and say, you know, this was donated by somebody at church, and... You know, we want you to have it, and it'll be in the dumpster in three or four months, and it could be a $1,000 table. It doesn't make any difference. You give them a plastic table, it's going to get the same treatment as a nice one because they have not been trained in what is of value, okay? So, um, but if you give $1,000 to a diligent, energetic person who will strive to make a better life for himself, that same money will turn into a business, a home, an education for his children, and an inheritance for his family. All at the same principle, what are you going to do with it? The sluggard will soon be back asking for more. The diligent soul will be back to repay what was given and to acknowledge your goodness to him. You see it all the time in the world. The Lord knew the man he was selecting and he knew the great and effective ministry he would produce. And so Paul was selected in response to this act of grace. He notes that I labored more abundantly than all. All of the other apostles have been granted their title and ministry while Christ was alive. Though undeserving of their title, just as Paul was, they had grown into it and were comfortable with it. Paul, on the other hand, had it almost thrust upon him. Now, I don't mean to diminish the other apostles in any way. And you can tell from Matthew's writing about himself that he understood grace. He doesn't even refer to himself. He says, a tax collector, you know, so... They understood these things. I'm not trying to diminish them. I'm saying that Paul just understood it more because of where he was at. He understood the weight of the glory which had surrounded him, and he knew that he could never repay the grace and mercy he received. And therefore, he labored in a way that no one else did, no other person. He who rightly perceives the grace he has received will show gratitude for it. Paul was such a person. And yet, despite laboring with all of his effort for the cause of Christ, he was humble enough in his heart, wise enough in his mind, to proclaim that it was not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Every breath a man takes is by the grace of God. The gifts we possess are all grace. Paul understood this and used his past experience, his makeup, his knowledge, and every part of who he was to work for Christ. It was all of grace, and therefore it was all Christ. The selection was made, and Paul understood what that meant. He notes this several times in his writings. A good example is to be found in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, where he says, To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So he wasn't saying that I'm doing a great job. He's saying that Christ works in me mightily. He's using this vessel and he's doing it in a great way. Life application. Can we boast about what we have received? 
Absolutely not. No way. And yet, how often we do. Let us credit the glory to God in all things that we accomplish for him. Let us exalt Christ who works so effectively in us for his good purposes and his pleasure. Verse 1511. There you go. Go ahead. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. There you go. This is what you believe. This is what we preach, and so what you believe. It's As uh, Jim noted, I don't know if you could hear him, but he said this verse absolutely crushes the fact that there are two Gospels. Hyper-dispensationalism, I bring it up all the time. It's, it's one of the nuttiest doctrines on the face of this planet, and people get into it, and they think, that sounds right, and they're not schooled in theology, and the next thing you know, they're believing that there are two Gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. I typed a commentary yesterday, which could not be more clear from the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. It's not the one that I put out. It's, yeah, Peter, it's, everything Peter says is right in line with what Paul says, 100%. There is one Gospel, and to say otherwise, I hate to say it, I've said it before and I'll say it again, is heresy. It's not just bad doctrine. There's a difference between bad doctrine and heresy. A heresy will actually keep the next guy from being saved. And hyperdispensationalism, when it's taught in a church to people, are never going to come to a saving knowledge of Christ because they believe that there are two gospels and God is doing two different things in the world. He's not. There is one new covenant and we just happen to be brought into the commonwealth of that covenant, being Gentiles. But it's the same gospel message. All right, 1511, Paul begins verse 11 with two conjunctions. Therefore, whether. The therefore covers all the way back to the first verses of the chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Let me take it back there. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also, which you, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, that's the uh, first part of it. This then explains the often confused concept of verse 2. It is that verse which people incorrectly assume can mean a loss of salvation as possible. We talked about that when we were there. The reason is because they look at the verse out of context. The entire context of these first 11 verses shows us that this is not the case, but that salvation is eternal. If one believes they are emphatic, saved. The word whether refers to the party who spoke the message, either himself or one of the other apostles. It didn't matter which. It didn't matter how they became apostles. It didn't matter whether he was once a persecutor of the church and so on. Regardless of those issues, the message spoken was the same as from any and all of the other apostles. Same message, same salvation, same Christ. The word Paul uses for preach in this verse is caruso. There are different words used in the Greek which are translated as preach. Of them, one indicates to prophesy. That would be a spiritual instruction or exhortation. Think of Sunday morning here. It indicates the stating of the facts of the message of the gospel. Paul has proclaimed them to those in Corinth, and they are in unison with the proclamation of the other apostles. It is the one, only, true, and saving message. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? You're talking about hyper-dispensationalism. You've got um, people that will go theology shopping. Theology shopping. Anybody know what that is? Theology shopping is, well, I know there's a God, and 
I want to be on his good side. And so I'm going to go and start looking at different theologies. And they go to Buddhism. And they say, oh, well, that sounds pretty good. And then they go and they check out Islam. They say, I, I don't really want to do that. And they shop around in their theology until they find something that fits with them personally. Okay. They may say, well, I, I like the message of Jesus, but, okay. And so I become a Christian. But now I've got doctrine shopping. Okay. I've got my theology. I've done, I've shopped that out. But now I'm going to shop doctrine. And so I say, well, I don't like the concept of original sin. That's real harsh. And so what do they do? They go to websites and they start looking for things that will refute original sin. And they'll find a site that says original sin isn't true. And they take verses out of context and they make up a doctrine. And they say, I like that. It doesn't matter if it matches the Bible or not. They shop for that doctrine. And you could have this with any doctrine in the Bible. If Jesus is God... Well, that means he's the same God as that Old Testament wrathful God. He's a hateful God, right? And I don't want my Jesus to be that. They misunderstand what we're going to see in Numbers chapter uh, 31 this week. Numbers 31 is a brutal chapter. You read it. If you know what I'm talking about, if you've ever read it, go kill all the... Everybody know the passage? Okay. It's, it's a bloody chapter. I'm going to tell you, when we get to that this weekend, you're going to find out why that is not the case. But they read these things and they don't understand the context of what Moses is saying by the Lord's word. And so they come out and they say, well, I don't like that old God, but I like this Jesus guy. But if he's that same God, so they doctrine shop and they find a site that says, well, Jesus isn't God. And here's why. Regardless of the fact that it is as evident as the nose on your face that Jesus is God. And so they become Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, now I'm a Jehovah's Witness because I don't want to believe that this is that. Because if this is that, then I've got a dilemma in my theology, which I've shopped already for. And so I'm doctrine shopping. Okay. Might have been the wrong choice. That's right. And so, you know, now we've got a dilemma because it says, well, there's very clearly that there's a trinity. I've heard this my whole life, but I don't like that. And Jesus isn't God. So now I can sweep that away. Never mind that the Bible says that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. It doesn't use the word trinity, just like it doesn't use the word original sin, but the doctrine is taught. So I'm going to shop on a website and I'm going to keep reading people's commentaries until I get what I like. And it doesn't matter what doctrine it is. I don't care what it is. We talk about women aren't supposed to be teaching and preaching in the church and it's very explicit and clear in the Bible. But I don't like that. I don't like that that's taught. And so I'm going to shop out that doctrine. And I'm going to find somebody that agrees with me and not with what the Bible clearly teaches. Okay. And then the next one. This is the most common doctrine teaching that I could think of. Doctrine shopping. When is the rapture? Well, first, first, maybe there's no rapture at all. I don't want to believe in that because that just sounds too spooky and that's against my thinking. Okay, never mind the chapter we're in is pretty clear about this. And so they shop through there and they say, well, uh, there's a pre-trib, there's a mid-trib. And I like that idea of the mid-trib. Here's why. They have it in their mind that this is what they like. Maybe they heard somebody talk about it and they say, well, I don't want to agree with that guy. I want to agree with that guy. And so I'm going to go to Jacob Presh and I'm going to listen to him. He teaches a mid-tribulation rapture. So I'm going to agree with that. Okay, I've doctrine shopped that out. Okay, now I don't like what Jacob Press says about Jesus. He says he's a created being. I don't like that. So I'm not going to agree with that. I'm going to shop over here and find something else. Or I do like it because that takes care of another problem that I might have. And they're shopping. People shop out theology instead of reading the word first and getting trained in their own minds so that when they hear a commentary, they know if it's right or wrong. Everybody got that? That's doctrine shopping. And eventually, if you've read the Bible enough, before you get your doctrine straight, 
you, when you hear something that's wrong, you will say, I know that's wrong. And you'll be more prone to not shop for your doctrine. Or you may go and you read a lot of commentaries and you say, that person agrees with that, that one doesn't. But I know this person isn't right because I've read that elsewhere and you're able to make this, this uh, understanding. That's why I say, if you don't know the word of God in advance of being given doctrine, you will have funny theology. It is going to affect your theology. You know, I, I do not like those Jewish people. I don't like them and I just need to get away from them. But Jesus is a Jew. And so I'm going to shop out my doctrine. I'm going to go with R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul is going to teach me, well, the church is Israel. The Jews are out. Or were the Jews? Actually, he said that in one of his commentaries. You want to know where the Jews are? Here we are. Never mind that the Bible doesn't teach that. Okay, but I'm going to shop out that doctrine. And so that's what people do. They do it all the time. They do it all the time. They'll email me and they'll ask me a question about something. And I'll say, this is the answer. And then they'll come back and they'll say, well, I don't like that. So I'm going to go shop it out somewhere else, right? Yes. Happens all the time. Happens to, happened to me today with uh, what was the issue? I brought it up a minute ago in the uh, 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 hyper-dispensationalism. That's what we're talking about. So people will shop out their doctrine. That's a bad way to get your theology yeah, down. It it's very, very bad to do that. So try to remember that everything that happens in Scripture is tied to everything else. Everything, okay? Don't shop out your doctrine. That's that's a very poor way of handling your theology. Shopping, that means somebody is selling. Somebody is selling. That's right. If you are shopping, that's a very good point. If you are shopping, somebody is selling. And they will have a commentary that you will agree with. And you'll say, I like that because I don't like what Charlie said. Or I don't like what R.C. Sproul said. Or I don't like what John Piper said. And so I'm going to shop out and I'm going to get something that I like. And I'm going to stick with it even though it doesn't match what scripture teaches because I don't like what Paul wrote about that issue, or I don't like what Jesus portrays compared to Jehovah of the Old Testament. I don't, and this is the most common thing that we can do, and it is really bad way of chasing your theology. Read the Bible until you can't read it anymore, and then pick it up and read it some more. Never stop reading the Bible, and don't come to the Bible with presuppositions. Come to the Bible and let the Word speak to you before you read those commentaries, all right? I have a life application here for you. Let's see here. Um, uh, yes, life application. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15 took many surrounding verses to understand correctly. Read that again. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, because people will say that shows that you can lose your salvation when it's not speaking about that at all, took many surrounding verses to understand correctly. When citing individual verses, context must be maintained. If it is not, then a false understanding of what is being relayed may occur. I should scratch that and say will occur because that's what's going to happen. In this case, salvation is conditioned upon belief in the true gospel message. If that message is heard, received, and believed, then it saves the one who believes for all time. So salvation is this simple part. Hopefully you've got that right. You're, you're not under somebody that's teaching a heresy. And then from that point, everything else comes down to rewards and losses. And is my doctrine sound? Is it not sound? Or do I not care? Because a lot of people don't care about doctrine. They love Jesus. They got saved and they go to church and listen to, you know, light sermons and they listen to music and that's all they want to do. That's fine. That is their choice. But they will get no rewards for proper doctrine or growing in the word of God. They might get rewards for, I don't know, being faithful and loving Jesus, whatever. Everything that's done in faith will be rewarded. But the more that you pursue the Lord and the more you do it through his word, 
I am absolutely certain that you are going to get more rewards for it. Not that that should be your end goal. Your end goal should be, I want to know Jesus. He died for me. He saved me. I want to know Jesus. That is where you should really want to be. But anyway, um, let's see here. We got 1512. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He is going to take this theme all the way through to the end of this chapter. And this chapter is what, 50, uh, 58 verses long. I almost said 58, and then I thought, I'm not going to do it and be wrong, and I would have been right. Anyway, 58 <laughs> verses long, and he is going to take this theme right now, and he is going to come at it from every possible angle that you can think of, which includes the rapture itself, okay? But Paul has clearly presented the gospel message concerning Christ. It is the same message which was believed by those in Corinth. The purpose and effect of this preaching takes us right back to his earlier words that it is the gospel by which you are saved. A moment later, he said, unless you believed in vain. Salvation implies more than just this life. It implies something which transcends this life. If it doesn't, then his coming words in verse 19 are all the more poignant. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Think about it. Why would you believe in Christ? What difference does it make if we only believe, him for, believe in him for this life? That's like putting your faith in Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, hey, you know, you know these these people that were around him, and who was it? Uh, uh, what was his main guy and his wife were there at the last day? Hitler had just whacked himself and Eva Brown together, and what did they do? They went and they gave cyanide pills to their four children, killed them, and then they went and killed each other, or he killed his wife, shot her in the head, and then shot himself. What kind of a hope is that? What kind of a life is that? That you put all of your hope in somebody that can't do anything for you except in this life. And that's what Paul is saying about Christ. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we're to be the most pitied. Worse than those people that followed Hitler because we have a hope and they didn't. Their hope was in this life. And so that was all they got. It didn't matter to them. But our hope is in something beyond this life. And if it's not true, we are really to be pitied. Here we are living our lives in a way that we think is proper when in fact we're completely wrong. We're completely wrong. We've wasted our life on thinking about somebody that didn't come out of the grave. And he is going to refute that every way but, what's the term, every way but Tuesday or something? Sunday. Every way but Sunday. Okay. And the gospel message, which they believed, and which he reiterated to them, is the fact that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Notice what it says there. The third day. Everybody got that? It says it 13 times in the New Testament. He rose the third day on the third day, not after three days. Okay. His words here repeat this thought by saying, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because these people are coming into the church and they're saying, well, there's no resurrection. Okay. And they're saying, well, Christ may have resurrected from the dead, but there's no resurrection for you. But they're saying there's no resurrection. He said, how can they say that if there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, if Christ has preached that he's raised from the dead, then somebody's been resurrected. Right? Everybody got that? So somebody was. So there must be something else besides that. What he is surely referring to here is that some in the church denied that there would be a resurrection of the dead. These were probably the Epicureans who denied any sort of future life. Or another group known as the Stoics who denied a physical <laughs> bodily resurrection. Instead, they taught that a future life was spiritual in nature. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses did. They say that it 
Christ was raised a mighty spirit being. He wasn't raised a spirit being. He said, look at my hands, feel me. Spirit doesn't have bones and flesh as you see I have. Or eat. He ate afterwards. That's right. Okay? I, but people don't want to believe that he is Jehovah, and so they come up with their own unsound doctrine because it has to skip over parts of Scripture. It has to deny the literal reading of passages. What? They went down the wrong aisle in the uh, theology. They went show. down the wrong aisle in the theology store. They went down the wrong doctrine aisle, and they picked out the wrong doctrine. That's right. Okay? So... Instead, they, this is the uh, Stoics, they taught that a future life was spiritual in nature. Paul's words now and in the verses to come will logically, not just I'm telling you this because I'm an apostle, it will logically dispel such nonsense. They will also uh, show the consequences of such a notion. In order to show them the utter folly of this, he tells them that the message that was preached and which they believed already demonstrated that there had been one example of a literal bodily resurrection, that of Jesus. He went to great lengths to show that not only did it occur, but it was witnessed by a large list of people. We can go back and read those verses again. 500 of them saw first Peter and then, uh, uh, and then 500, right? Okay. And as Brother Usama noted when he was here uh, the last time, he said, well, if 500 people saw it and they only count the men, which is what the way they did the counting, then that means that probably they had a wife there and they probably had two or three kids and they might have had, you know, whatever. Um, uh, I don't think they had LGBT element of PQ back then, so we got excluded all of them. But if you figure the men and they have wives and children, you might be up to as many as 2,000 people that saw it. But they're only counting the men, just like they did at the, you know, the 5,000 sitting out there in the field while he was feeding them. Okay, so you've got a much larger group of people. But we'll just go with 500. It's still enough to substantiate it, okay? It was a large list of people thus confirming the surety of the matter. If there was one such resurrection, then it naturally followed that there would be more. That's the entire point of com Christ's coming, was so that we wouldn't die. We would no longer die because death came by sin, and sin came by the giving of the law in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord said, I am going to fix this problem. It took a long, methodical time, and he was doing everything to prepare for the coming of his son. And then his son came, and his son raised from the dead. I am victorious over death, and that is what I promised you. Then it logically follows that you will be raised as well if you do what God says to do in accord with the Messiah he has sent. Okay? The premise of calling on Christ is that the individual moves from fallen Adam to the risen Christ. If we are in Christ, then we will follow him from death to life. It's not maybe, it is will. So when somebody says you can lose your salvation, I mentioned him earlier, one of the Prophecy Update teachers, he says you can lose your salvation. He's a Westland Arminianism. Okay, that's his doctrine. We talked about it up here one of these days. It is incorrect. It is wrong. If somebody teaches you that, it is wrong. And we can show you why that's wrong. All of the different doctrines, we've done it many times. We did it in Romans. I, we may have done it once in 1 Corinthians, but we go through that. And remember the duck examples in the river, and it, it's all there. It's very clear how that all works out if you take it in a simple thing. But every single other thing in the Bible follows suit with it. It's not like there's a maybe or uh, the verses that people say justify loss of salvation, such as Hebrews chapter, chapter 6, are taken out of context. 
they're out of context. But when you put them in their proper context of who is being addressed and how it relates to what Paul, or the author of Hebrews, who I argue is Paul, then you know that it's not correct. It's a bad doctrine. If somebody teaches those poor doctrines, they're not very good teachers. And I'm not trying to belittle them. I'm just saying that it is a bad doctrine. Okay? And Paul is saying that right here. If I'll read it again. The premise of calling on Christ is that the individual moves from fallen Adam, who dies, right, to the risen Christ. If he's gone from Adam to Christ, then you are in the same model as Christ, and you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, that God is not imputing you sins. If you're not being imputed sins, and sin by sin is the wages of death, then you can't die anymore. One plus one always equals two in theology. If we are in Christ, then we will follow him from death to life. It is the logical and natural outcropping of the matter. This will continue to be explained in detail throughout the chapter. He will, he will go into great detail. You will not be unhappy if you stick it out through the rest of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians because you will see these doctrines coming to full light. Okay, life application. What God does is logical and reasonable. You could even say it's mechanical because it is this, it is this, and when something is mechanical, it always does the same thing. There's no waffling and it. it just keeps putting out the same thing. What God does is logical, it's reasonable, and it will never change. Now, people will use that argument and say, well, if God doesn't change, then there's no such thing as dispensations because God is working differently at different times. It's the same God. He's working differently, but he's doing the same thing. He is coming to the same end result. Dispensations does not negate that God is doing the same thing, that he is unchanging. It is a way of him revealing his plan to the people of the world, okay? If the wages of sin is death, and if Christ had no sin, then death could not hold him. That's Acts chapter 2, 24. Thank you. If we are in Christ and our sins are no longer counted against us because we are now in Christ, we move from Adam to uh, Christ, then we too must rise to eternal life. We must. It's not maybe. We must. Okay. It is impossible to be any other way. Don't have doubts, but have full confidence in the surety of eternal life. All granted because of the work of Christ. All granted because of the work of Christ. And there are 10,000 different arguments that we can use. And Peter alone, in the first chapter and a half that I've typed, are at least 25 evidences for eternal salvation. At least 25. And you read it and you'll be done with those in a couple of minutes reading by yourself and you study him and you will see again and again, he is proclaiming eternal salvation. He is proclaiming eternal salvation. This is Peter, same message as Paul. Okay, 15, 13. First, um, okay, so the question I'm sure that some might have here, I have it, and the people online will have it, is that, okay, if you are a saved Christian and you have died, right? you are in the grave. Right. You come out of the grave? Physically, with your body, you'll be given a new body. Your physical body is in. He's going to address that. I'll, I'll read you right now. I'll give you a little advance. Here's what it says here. Um, I, he gives to the body, and he says here, it is sown. This is the body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So it's not this body that comes out of the grave. Because if it is, this body is corruptible. Okay? And he goes on and he says that as well, down in verse 48. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, meaning Adam, that we're in this body that will return to the dust when we die. We all know that. Okay. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. 
He is no longer corruptible. He never saw corruption, and neither will we. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And that's when we get into the mystery, the rapture, okay? And so that answers your question. But we'll get to that in detail in about two weeks. But for right now, I will say that the next verses talk about the rapture. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul is telling them a mystery. A mystery is something that has never before been revealed, okay? If Paul is writing out this mystery for the first time, 30-some years after Jesus' death, then Jesus is not speaking about the rapture in Matthew 24. Please understand that. When he says no man knows the day or hour, he is not speaking about the rapture. He never referred to the rapture. He never referred to Gentiles being brought into this dispensation, except as he revealed it in the Old Testament, such as Isaiah 42 and 43, where it's very clear that the Gentiles are included. But Jesus did not talk about those things. He talked to Israel about their state under the law, the coming kingdom, and until he was resurrected, none of those things were talked about. And afterward, they began to be revealed. Yes. And after a mystery is told, is it? It's revealed. It's revealed. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29, right there. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Not five ever, not three ever, but forever. Yes, Carol. Question. Yes. When Jesus rose from the dead, I believe it was in Acts. Okay. He rose from the dead in the Gospels, but in Acts. Right. Well, um, when he rose, the saints rose with him and they went to their families. Many rose. It says that some people rose and they were around Jerusalem. And I can't give any comment on that verse at all. The Bible does not explain it anywhere else. There's nothing to go on except that verse itself. And so all we can do is just take it at face value. There's nothing in scripture that speaks of that event beyond that. And if you read a long commentary on that verse, that somebody says, well, this is what that means. They're making it up. Because that verse stands alone as just something that happened. It was a description, and it is not referred to anywhere else in Scripture. So I, I can't give you any more on it than what it says in that verse. But it, they did raise. Um, they did not come back to life permanently resurrected. In other words, there was, there was something that happened, but we're not given any more than that verse. I don't see any need to comment on beyond what the verse itself states. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, 15, 13. 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Okay, it's a little differently worded there, but you get the same general idea. But is given as a contrast to what was just said. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Those in the church who denied a literal resurrection of the body had not thought through their faith very well. Now, they can be probably excused to some point because they didn't have the word of God other than the Old Testament. And these are Greek cities writing to for the most part. They'd probably never read any of scripture. They may have heard some of it read after coming to Christ, whatever, but they were not familiar with this. And so their theology is very low. Paul had gone in. He, he had talked to them about these things. We've already seen that earlier in 1 Corinthians. But one, we have many people here have been reading their Bible for years, and we all still have questions, right? We still have questions. People will send me a question, and I'll say, you know, I never thought of that. Never even crossed my mind, okay? So these people have an excuse for not knowing everything, okay? But 
They didn't think this issue through, and they're making statements to the other believers, just like they do in uh, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, where somebody goes in and he says, well, this is you know, not the way it is, and that's what they're doing here. They're harming the body because Paul has already said that Christ is raised from the dead, and we have an eternal hope in Christ. So he's correcting them again. So those in the church who denied a literal resurrection of the body had not thought through their faith very well. If there's no such thing as a literal resurrection, then it must logically follow that Christ didn't literally resurrect either. If he did, and we move to him as our head by faith, then we are in him, and we will naturally resurrect when the fullness of times comes for that to occur. We are in Christ. He raised from the dead. He promises that he's coming back for us. We will be raised from the dead. Also implied in this verse, is that the apostles and all of the others noted as having seen the resurrected Christ are either liars or they're delusional. Paul said that Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead. This is based on the eyewitness testimony of that noted uh, list that was given in verses 5 through 8. However, if there is no resurrection, then the testimony that Christ resurrected is false. If it is false, then what on earth are people doing in church? If the message of Jesus isn't true, why would you go to church? And that's, I say the same thing about Unitarian beliefs, people that believe in the Unitarian model, that there is no hell. Then why on earth would you ever go to church? Even once, if there's no hell and there's no consequences, you might as well go out and do whatever you want. I mean, whatever. It doesn't make any difference because this is a temporary blip. You might as well get the best out of it and then go on from there because you're going off to glory. I don't understand how people could even hold to that doctrine and say, I'm going to attend that church. You hear it once and you stop going. Anyway, the resurrection is wholly and inextricably tied to the sinless death of Christ. If there was no sinless death, then there was no resurrection. Why? Because the wages of sin are death, is death, right? If he had sinned, then he would not have resurrected. One cannot have one without the other. If one is false, they are both false. If both are false, then there is no gospel and there is no true church. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? Life application. Don't let people cause your faith to be diminished by fine-sounding arguments. The doctrines of the Bible are perfectly revealed in the Bible and show a perfect plan given by the perfect creator. If you have a doubt about one of the primary doctrines of the faith, then research it while praying to God to lead you to competent scholars with knowledgeable commentaries on the issue that you are struggling with. Okay? I'll go back to doctrine shopping. It just came to mind. Can you drink wine or can you not drink wine? Don't answer it. I'm just saying that's one of the options that people have. Some churches say you can't drink anything at all. Some churches say there's nothing in the Bible that says that you can't drink wine. And so what are you going to do? I think drinking is bad. And so I'm going to go read Charles Ryrie's commentaries on the Bible because he doesn't believe that you should be drinking anything. Okay. And then some people say, well, I do want to have a drink and I don't understand. But the Bible seems to show to me that it's okay. Where do I go to get a commentary on that? Right? That's just, that's doctrine time. It just came to mind and I thought I'd throw that in because of what I just said right here. Okay? If you have a doubt about, and that's not a primary doctrine, that's a secondary or even a tertiary doctrine. It's a very minor doctrine. But if you have doubt about a primary doctrine of the faith, then research it while praying to God to lead you to competent scholars with knowledgeable commentaries. Okay? If you ask God in sincere truth, 
to reveal something to you? Do you think he's going to hold it from you? But most people don't want to. They ask God and then they go looking for the answer. They doctrine shop. Okay. And that's just the way it is. What are some of the primary doctrines? I'm not talking about second. I'm talking about primary doctrines, which say this will result in heresy if it's not true. Jesus is God. Well, let's do this really quick. There's a good way of, this is just a simple way of doing it. As I think it's I-V-D-A-A-R. Okay. The incarnation of God, inspiration of scripture, I think is this one. I just remember somebody gave this an acronym to me or whatever you call it, whatever. So inspiration of scripture. Okay. That's one of them. The inspiration of scripture. Okay. Whatever. Okay. What another one, which is actually, if you teach this wrong, it is a heresy, is the virgin birth. Virgin birth. Okay. If Christ wasn't born of a virgin, there's a real problem in your theology. Okay. Uh, the next one is the uh, deity of Jesus Christ. D-I-E-T-Y. Deity of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. That's a primary doctrinaire. If he's not God, there's a problem with your theology. Okay. The next one would be the uh, a all-sufficient atonement of Christ. A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. Atonement. Okay. Then there's another A. What am I thinking of here? Uh, I-V-D-A-A-R. Atonement and the... Uh, oh. Uh, no, it's not not Adam. Uh, atonement. I just remembered that. And uh, anyway, we'll skip that one for right now. The next one would be the resurrection of Christ, the literal resurrection. Uh, Ivdar, two. That's what it is. Two R's. I think that's what it was. The resurrection and the return of Christ. Okay. Christ is literally coming back. Ivdar. Anyway, I think that's the way he said. Those are some primary. That's an easy way of remembering primary doctrines is to make a, a whatever. There are others that you could consider primary as well. You've got um, uh, the Trinity. That is a primary doctrine. Okay, if you teach the Trinity incorrectly, you will always end up in heresy. And if you teach the Trinity too much, you'll end up in a heresy anyway, because there's a point where we cannot understand the nature of God completely. Okay, the best analogy of the Trinity is the one that I did on the board. And I think it was in Romans with time. Time is future, it is present, and it is past. And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then I describe it there. And if you want that, I can email you that particular thing. It's very well done. It was um, uh, Dr. Nathan Woods. Uh, I think he was at Fuller Theological Seminary. Anyway, he did a wonderful, wonderful commentary on that particular book. He, he wrote a whole book on it, but that one section on the Trinity was magnificent. And it's very short, uh, but uh, time is probably the best analogy. If you use ice and water and steam, that's not good. If you use an egg, which is, you know, a shell and a yolk and a, a, a what do you call it, a, the white, that's not a good analogy. If you use the actor that comes out from behind the screen with three different faces on, that is not a good analogy. Most of those are modalism, God working in modes. That is not correct. Space, each of them have three. They each have three of their own things. That's right. Time, space, time, and matter. Uh, time with, I'm sorry, uh, space would be um, length, breadth, and width. Uh, uh, time, I'm sorry, uh, time, space, and matter. Uh, time would be past, present, and future, and then matter would be energy in motion producing phenomena. So each is its own kind of trinity, but I would just stick with time. I wouldn't get into all the, the, the lesser issues. Time itself very well describes the nature of the trinity. And like I said, that, that we've done on the board, go back and watch that old uh, Bible study, and it, it's very close. And then the uh, uh, diagram that I do with the, you know, the uh, uh, triangle, and then you got the circle on the side. 
Okay, anyway, whatever. We can do that again sometime. But those are primary doctrines. Those are things that you want to get right. The lesser doctrines are not salvific in nature. It's just those people that just want to tickle their own ears and they don't want to listen to the word of God. And I'm going to go out and do this or that, whatever. Okay, but the, the primary doctrines, if you don't have those right or if you don't teach those right, there's a real problem there. Anyway, so um, what verse are we still in? 14 or are we in 15? Um, 14 still. Oh, okay, here we go. Um, uh, in, you read 14 though, didn't you? I don't think I did. No. Okay, go ahead. Okay, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Oh boy, isn't that the truth? Yeah. For if Christ, let me see what this one says. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, in the next few verses, Paul will state explicit consequences for us if Christ didn't actually rise. If he did, there is one result, but if not, there is another. His coming words are to be taken soberly, and they must also make us question the sanity of those who sit in churches and yet deny that Jesus did, in fact, rise. Anybody know Spong? He was a popular writer about 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, bishop or whatever. He was a theologian, supposed theologian, and he says that Christ swooned on the cross. Instead of dying, he, he just passed out, right? So they put him in the grave and Listen, if somebody went through all of that, he wouldn't have walked out of the grave 20 years later. He'd still be in pain. There's just no way, okay? He lost that much blood. He just swooned. But he came out okay after that. No, he literally died, and then he literally rose again. But what's it? Uh, they just don't, they want to deny the, they want to deny the fundamental principles of the faith. They're these people that Paul writes about later in the book of Timothy. Anyway, what he will say, meaning Paul then is what is known as a reductio ad absurdum. Anybody know what that means? An argument to absurdity. I'm reducing it down to the absurd. If Christ is not risen, begins the thought. What if this is the case? What would be the result of such a truth? Where would that leave the apostles? Where would that leave you? The answers will flow from his pen with an almost sense of mourning at the state of despair which would result. If Christ is not risen, then... The word then is intended as a forceful statement of irony, which conveys the idea of such it would be, or after all, have a wonderful evening, ladies. Take good care. Good to meet you. If so, then our preaching is empty, he says. All of the efforts of the apostles, any hope or comfort they have imparted, any trials they have faced in spreading the word about Jesus, and so much more, all of it is vanity and without any substance. If the words of the apostles could be seen as they came forth from their mouths, those same words would melt in the air as they were uttered, disappearing back into nothingness. This is the result of Christ not having risen. The words would have no value whatsoever. But more than just the apostles' words, the believer's faith is also empty. It would mean that the entire story was pointless. Who cares at all if a person named Jesus lived in the land of Israel and went around doing good stuff? Who cares if such a person healed others, told interesting stories, and claimed to be the Son of God? And so, what if the person was nailed to a cross? Who cares? If there is no resurrection, then all that was accomplished is just another story of man, like any other story of man who has ever existed. There is no hope in man. Every great leader who ever lived eventually died, and with him went everything that he was, right back into the dust. 
If Christ did not rise again, then the dust would have reclaimed him as well. Think it through. Why would anyone go to church even once if the resurrection isn't true? Why bother? Life application. Jesus Christ did rise, and our hope is not in vain. We look to a blood-stained cross, but an empty grave as well. Because of Jesus, it is literally impossible that his followers could remain in the grave. It is more certain that we will be resurrected than it is that the law of gravity would suddenly cease to exist. It ain't going to happen. We will be raised, 100% guaranteed. There's no doubt about it. If Christ came out of the grave, we have sufficient evidence to say he did. It will happen. We will be raised to eternal life. 1515. No, go ahead. Burke's got something. Romans 8, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ, from, uh, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. There you go. That's, so That's a verse that should be on our tapes. It should be on our tapes. Right in conjunction with this one right here. What was that? 8? 811. 811. Great verse. Romans 811. Okay, so who raised Jesus from the dead? You just read it. What does it say? Well, it says God raised you from the dead. Okay, God, but specifically the Spirit. Okay, what does it say in Galatians chapter 1? Verse 1. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And what did Jesus say? I lay my life down. I can take it up again. All three of the Godhead are working in harmony yep. with one another. Had this conversation with my good friend a day ago. All three are working in harmony with one another. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all working together in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Okay, there you go. 1515. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not rise him, but... He did not raise him if, in fact, the dead, dead do not, not rise. You can see how he's taking it reductio ad absurdum. He's saying it's absurd, and he gives you the absurd premises if what they say is true. Read the first words of that again, 1515. Or if the dead no, no, are not raised. No, 15. Read 15, I'm sorry. More than that. Uh, that's what I thought they said, more than. It makes it sound like his argument there is more important than the other. And This one doesn't say that. It says, yes. And we are found false witnesses, which is more in accord with, you know, what he's saying. So anyway, 1515, not only would the preaching of the apostles be found empty, which would in turn mean that the faith of those who heard and believed to be found empty, but moreover, it would demonstrate something even deeper and more sinister, that the apostles are found false witnesses of God. The word for found implies proven to be. It would not be a mistake in their preaching and teaching, but rather a proof positive that there was an intentional hand of deceit involved. Why? Because Paul had claimed in the preceding verses that all of the apostles had seen the risen Christ. Thus, should someone have checked his story, for example, by searching out some of the 500 mentioned in verse 6, and determined they were lying, then it would be proven proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had testified of God, as Paul says, that he was raised up whom he did not raise up. Imagine the severity of the charge. This isn't just a lie about who ate the cake that was being saved for dessert. Rather, this would be a lie about the truth of God himself. The severity of the charge would be against not just Paul, but all of the apostles. It would show an 
intricate conspiracy that went to establish the heretical cult worship of a false god. This would be punishable by death if proven true, and it would also bring the highest disgrace upon the name they were trying to exalt. Everything about the matter would be exposed and then soon forgotten by the world, leaving nothing but a legacy of miscreants bringing dishonor upon the true God they claimed to serve. All of this is tied up in the notion of what Paul is showing, if in fact the dead do not rise. Everything about the Christian faith and every person who is given life or limb for it has its basis in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of it. Without that event, it would be nothing but a hopeless system based on an intricately detailed web of lies. Life application, if you do not believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, your hope of eternal life is in vain, and you should well question your salvation. Calling on a dead Lord is as stupid as driving a nail into your forehead. So when Linda and I first came to we were going to a lot of Bible schools. Speak close. louder because they we can't hear you. fell into a really good church. That even though if I, when I confessed that it was a Methodist church, everyone goes, what? What? But anyhow, they, they biblically, as best as they can do. And um, uh, the Bible study, one of the points that were brought up about the veracity of the Bible was that all the apostles, except for John, went to their death. And yeah. gruesome right death. and not and if this was a lie somebody, then they died for nothing somebody would have coughed it up and said wait 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 that's exactly kidding. right it's like you know you that is don't do that it's yeah like, that's uh what's his name uses that same argument in the case for christ to lee strobel oh, yeah. He's, he uses that exact same argument yeah. if the apostles weren't telling the truth when they faced that horrible death that they faced they would have said okay i give it up but that's such is not the case, and that's absolutely correct. And who does that? Who does that? Who would do Nobody. that? Nobody. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Start. Nobody would do that if they knew that it was a lie. Right. If people, you know, now people go and blow themselves up all the time all over the world because of something they think is true. They don't know that it's a lie. They think it's true, and there's a, a world of difference between the two. These people were right there at the beginning. And they knew it to be true or false, 100%. And nobody would have done what they did and suffered what they suffered for a lie. Okay, 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised either. He's already said this in three ways, maybe four. And he's saying it again. Mm -hmm. He's making the most logical argument he can, precept by precept, and restating it each way. Each way he restates it, it is to ensure that nobody can come back later and say, but you didn't say this. I said it this way, I said it this way, I said it this way, and it's in writing, folks. Okay, verse 13 and verse 16 are parallel lines of thought. Verse 13 says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Verse 16 says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Why has Paul repeated himself after such a short time? First, the answer is that if the claim is false, verse 13, then the witnesses of the resurrection were also untrue. That's verses 14 and 15. Now, repeating himself, he shows that if the claim is false, verse 16, then the logical effects of the resurrection in the life of believers would also be false. That is coming soon to two verses near you, verse 17 and 18. In turn, the consequences of such a false premise would then be realized in the lives of such hopeless creatures. That is verse 19. It is a second reductio ad absurdum. 
used to show the utter folly of a person claiming they are a Christian while denying that the resurrection of the body is true. Viewed from either angle, without a literal resurrection of Christ, there is only futility and folly in claiming to be a Christian. Everything about the faith either stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would go so far as to say that the inspiration of Scripture is exactly the same. And we'll talk about that this Sunday in our sermon. Exactly the same. The Cambridge commentators make a comment. Maybe it's the pulpit, but I think it's Cambridge that makes a comment about the Word of God. Right at the beginning, I'll state it. And if that's not true, I'm going to give you the same type of argument that Paul gives here. If what they say is true, then this, this, and therefore this. We might as well just go on out on Sunday. As soon as I get done saying that, stop the sermon, turn off the streaming, and go out and have a party. It's that important. The inspiration of Scripture is that important. Okay? And what is inspired and what isn't? It's that important. Okay? There we go. Let's see here. Viewed from either angle, without a literal resurrection of Christ, there is only futility and folly in claiming to be a Christian. Everything about the faith either stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Life application. If you have a problem with one of the principal doctrines of the faith, take time to think them through to their logical conclusion. Inevitably, if you fail to accept the truth of those principal doctrines, such as the virgin birth, you should probably question your faith and thus your salvation. Stand firm on the truth of Christ as is presented in the Bible. If Jesus is not God, you better question your faith because you have no hope at all. If he was a created being, you have no hope at all. I'm sorry, people say that he was created in the womb of Mary. If they say that, that is a flat out heresy. 100% that is heretical. It is God who stepped out of the united, the, the infinite realm and united with human flesh in the womb of Mary. He is fully God and fully man. He is not a created being. Anything other than that, completely contradicts all of scripture. It is full-fledged heresy. Go ahead. 28th of Matthew. The uh, next day after the after the preparation. Right. The uh, chief priests and the Pharisees, they're supposed to be the leaders. Right. Anyway, gather together with Pilate and they say, we remember. That deceiver. Said, after three days, I will rise again. And they said, in the the second deception would be worse than the first. They right. Said, you know, they, they knew that he, they knew was, it. he was coming out of there. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So, <laughs> And the funny thing is they knew he came out of there and oh, they yes, still they passed did. on the lie. Yeah. You think they would have been scared to death? You would think, but you know what? They, they, as he says in the book of John, they love the praises of men rather than yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. So there you yeah. go. Yeah. I mean, where are you going to stand on your faith? Yeah. 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Oh boy, see that? That's that is as clear as it could be. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. If Christ sinned, he didn't raise from the dead. If he didn't raise from the dead, we will never be in Christ, and thus we will never have our sins one atoned for and two covered for all future sins. 2 Corinthians 5:19 is not true that God is imputing our sins to us and we are separated forever from God. That is the logical outcome. Paul just prior to this verse noted that if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. The logical result of this would be the most terrifying of all news. The premise of the resurrection comes from the truth that the wages of sin is death. Hey, I 
didn't even read this, and it's the same thing I just said. The Bible notes that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It is an all-inclusive statement because sin is not only some offense which has been actively committed, but it is also something that has been inherited by all people. Once again, we'll hear that in Sunday's sermon. I'll weave it all together so you can see this as clearly as possible from the Old Testament. Okay? It's inherited by all people. Where in the Bible does it say that? Explicitly. Uh, Romans 5, isn't it? Well, I'm talking about... It, uh, where it explicitly says that you inherited sin from Adam. Psalm 51. That'll be our text oh, okay. verse this yeah. week. Yeah, Psalm 51, verse 5. Anyway, um, because Adam who sinned at the beginning is our federal head, and all people are born from Adam's line, then all people are born in a state of sin. So much for the immaculate conception. God did not do something different for Mary. He did not do something different for Mary. She was born into the stream of humanity. She had a human father. She inherited his sin. She was a sin-filled person from the moment that she was conceived. The Catholic doctrine of immaculate conception is a heresy. Okay, please understand that. As an infinitely holy God cannot have fellowship with fallen sinful creatures, then all, all, not just some, all must be condemned. Christ came to undo this terrible state. The resurrection of Christ would imply that he was, in fact, sinless. If he was sinless, then his death could be suitable for our, as an offering for our sins. But if Christ is not risen, Paul says, then our faith is futile because it would indicate that he died in sin. He couldn't die for our sins because he was sinful himself. As we talked about, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, in the Old Testament, time and again, they take little babies and they would sacrifice them. And the idea was that this baby doesn't have sin, it's never done anything wrong, and therefore it's going to take away my sin. It's going to atone for my sin. My sins will be propitiated before God and will be happy again between him and me. And two things prove that that isn't true. One, baby the back. baby didn't come back alive. And two, the doctrine of inherited sin, because Adam was sinful and it passed on down the line, which is what the Bible teaches. So that is the way that that is. And that would have been the case if Christ was born with sin, but he didn't, okay? Um, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is futile because it would mean he died in sin. Logically, if the wages of sin is death and Christ remained dead, then he died in sin. The word futile is the Greek word matthaia. It is a different word than that translated as empty in verse 14. It signifies something fruitless. It indicates a difference between reality and result. That's Vincent's word studies. Therefore, his death could not be a sin offering. Our sins could not be forgiven. And thus, Paul notes that you are still in your sins. He's trying to wake them up to the fact that everything hinges on the fact that the resurrection is true. And therefore, if the resurrection of Christ is true, then your resurrection will happen. And he will get to that point in another 40-some verses. He will get to it. But he's got to make this logical argument first. Before he gives you the good news about the rapture and being joined to Christ, he's got to defend logically why this will happen. Okay? So, there is nothing magical or mystical about the work of Christ. Rather, it is exactly what is needed to free fallen man from the guilt he bears. Christ came to do that. In the cross, the Christian finds release from his sin debt only if Christ rose again. The resurrection proves the offering was accepted by God. It proves Christ's sinless perfection. 
and it proves that those who call on him are truly forgiven and not just forgiven and then you can lose it again. That it is once for all. It proves those things. The resurrection of Christ proves that we will be resurrected. There is no such thing as the loss of salvation. None. If somebody teaches that to you, you have been taught wrong. The verses that you have been instructed on are incorrect. Email me and I'll send you the correct evaluation of them because they're not that hard if you take them in the proper context. You cannot lose your salvation. You can lose your life. You can lose your joy, whatever. But God will resurrect you if you are saved once. You never have to be saved a second time and you will never unlose your salvation. Well, David said, restore to me the joy restore, of my That's right. Your restore salvation. to me the joy of your salvation. That, that is correct. Life application. The resurrection proves that the work of Christ at the cross was effective. If there is no literal bodily resurrection of Christ, then there is no Christian faith. It would be the greatest of lies. Further, there would still be no hope of reconciliation with God. All humanity would still be in their sins and destined for hell. Therefore, if someone tries to teach you that Christ didn't rise, or if they tell you that Christ didn't rise bodily, like a Jehovah's Witness, then tell them, Take a hike, heretic. I stand on the truth of the Bible. Christ is risen. I believe. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Oh boy, this one says have perished. Paul has been noting the consequences which would exist if Christ is not risen. The list has been sobering. One, it's obviously not for Berkey's over there yawning. Anyway, it's been sobering. One, preaching the gospel is empty. Two, the faith of the believer is also empty. Three, the apostles are actually found to be false witnesses of God. Four, the believer's faith is futile. Five, all remain in bondage to their sins. Now he notes another saddening consequence. If Christ hasn't risen, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If someone called on a dead Lord, they are in that dead Lord because he's dead. When they die, Paul continues with the theme of falling asleep because his words are rhetorical, then they will have perished. Everybody see that? He uses the word sleep because he's making sure they understand, I'm not serious about this, I'm making a, an argument, and so he still calls them asleep. Those in Christ who are asleep, all right, are perished, but they're not. He's making the point very clearly here. A dead Lord, why do we take the Lord's Supper? To remember his death, until he comes. Well, what does that mean? It means he must be alive. We're remembering the death, the atonement, until he comes. He can't come again if he's dead. We're remembering Christ's death, which took away our sins until he comes, which means we have the promise of him coming for us. That's why we take the Lord's Supper, and that's why we do it every week at this church. Whatever, do it however you want it, whatever church you're at, but take the Lord's Supper. If they don't give it to you every week at church, Take it at home. Just take it at home. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't administer it to yourself. Just take it. Remember the Lord's death until he comes. Okay? A dead Lord who is not raised can certainly not raise another. Uh, let me go back one thing. If someone called on the dead Lord, they are in that dead Lord. And because he is dead when they die, Paul continued. Oh, I've already said that. Okay. A dead Lord who is not raised certainly cannot raise another. Therefore, it is the end of the line for those who have followed him as Lord. The dreams of a future restoration were lost. The efforts they put forth for the, their trusted Lord were wasted. 
The things they taught their own family and friends were lies. And the stake they were burned at, or the bullet which ended their life as they called out, I am yours, O Christ, was of no merit at all. If Christ is not risen, then all of the hopes, dreams, aspirations, tears of joy, tears of sorrow, heartfelt prayers, and longing desires for his return, it was all misguided waste. That's the result of Christ not having been resurrected from the dead. That is it right there. I remember when Pastor Ross died, 7 November 2004, and I was over at the church, and Everybody was broken up over it, and they talked about the hope that we have. And then I remember a few days later, they had his casket sitting there in the uh, the uh, gymnasium for his funeral. And I remember thinking, everything that he was, it's all gone. All the learning I could have gotten from him, it's all gone. But it's not gone forever. It's only gone in this life. He is coming out of that box. He's coming out of that grave, and he will be resurrected to eternal life. But I remember all those thoughts in my head. I could have gotten so much much more theology out of him if I'd spent more time there. He was King James only, so, you know, whatever. But he's a good guy. I really liked him, and uh, he can be wrong on the King James only thing. But other than that, I really liked Pastor Ross. What's that? Not likely. Yeah, not likely. (laughs) Anyway, Paul will show the final consequence of such a notion, which I was talking about, somebody dying. Do you have to go? Goodbye, Miss Garrett. We love you. in the coming verse. Okay, he's going to, t- and we can't go to the coming verse because we only got, uh, do we have, uh, no, we can't finish the next one. I'm sorry, we can't do it in five minutes. So let me le- read a life application and we'll be done. Life application, there are a jillion, not a billion, not a quadrillion, but there are a jillion religions on earth. And the adherents of those various religions all believe that they are pursuing the true avenue of spiritual healing. And yet, only one can be true. If God is truly God, there is but one way to be restored to our creator, and it is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The resurrection proves that this is so, and the resurrection is not a mere vain hope. Instead, it is the truth of God. Be confident that your faith in Christ will be rewarded with eternal life in his wondrous presence. I can't wait for that day. Wonderful day. What is it? Oh, happy day. Heavenly Father, we look forward to that happy day. Oh, may it come soon. It's a tough world we're living in. It gets tougher every day as we get older and things break down and stop working properly and we lose family and friends and and finances maybe or we lose a home or whatever could happen. It just beats us down, Lord. And we're waiting for that better life where these things will not be a part of that economy. There'll be something entirely different for us. And we know that whatever it is, it will be glorious because you have promised it to your redeemed, your people who have trusted by faith alone in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this sure word. We thank you for the truth of the doctrines which are found in it. And we would ask that uh, many people would come to a saving knowledge of this wonderful Lord who did so much for us when we were in our fallen state in your presence. You reached out and had mercy even on us. Thank you for that, oh God, how wonderful it is. We love you. We praise you and we exalt you in the beautiful and exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's see here. We're going to go to a break. All right. Yeah.